Hello! Hello, everybody! Welcome to the Lunarverse. I'm Dr. Charles Liu, your host, and it would be really great. I would personally appreciate it greatly if you would call me Chuck. Anyway, we have a wonderful show today. I'm really looking forward to it. And as always, we will begin by introducing our co-host, Alan Liu. Hey, Alan. Hello. Ah, anything exciting going on today? I mean, it's just generally nice weather. We're you know got summer recording going on. It's going to be good. Oh. Um, I might have gotten a drink from a large chain. <laughs> <laughs> yes, drinks from large chains can sometimes be a, a joyfully cosmic cool thing. Well, maybe not cosmic. <laughs> Cool. Yeah, anyway. Definitely cool. <laughs> very, very nice. And I am very, very happy to have with us today as our special guest, Dr. Tom Rice. Tom, hi. Thanks for being with us today. Hey, everyone. It's good to be here, too. <laughs> thanks, Tom. So give us a little sense of what kind of science that you do, you know, the things that you've been doing research on over the past, oh, I don't know, a few years. What you got? Sure. sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, I study star and planet formation. So I study how solar systems form, how they come together from the stuff that's out there floating in our galaxy, like gas and dust. Um, and I can, you know, give you a deep dive into a couple of those like specialties that I've got. But basically, the big question is, you know, how did our own solar system get here? How did the Earth form? And uh, how commonly does that happen elsewhere in the universe? And how often does the yeah. conditions necessary for life come about? You know, that's a great exciting. Point. Yeah, because right now, I, I would say that probably the place where astronomy is making the greatest leaps and bounds is in this concept of exoplanets and planetary formation. We're finding so many of them now. We should really know, right? We hear people saying, oh, there must be billions or trillions of planets out there. Really? Is that actually true? Or is that just an extrapolation from a very small sample? So you'll be able to answer that question for us. Is that right? I'll do what I can to tell you what's known. <laughs> we will That's accept the best that. we can ask. So we now share and discuss today's joyfully cool cosmic thing. And it is about the discovery uh, uh, that has been made using the James Webb Space Telescope. Now, that's been getting a lot of news lately, of course. Uh, really one of the most magnificent astronomical instruments ever built. And it's out there and taking amazing pictures for us to think about. This particular data that the James Webb Space Telescope has been gathering is spectroscopic data about a brown dwarf. Uh, this brown dwarf called TWA27b, and a recent paper suggests that this brown dwarf is a baby. Uh, what do we mean by baby? A, young, right? B, small. But what's cool about it is not only is it young, but it's growing it appears to be adding material on it. We are literally watching a baby brown dwarf grow into an adult. I think that's an amazing thing. I think that's remarkable. Uh, Tom, give us your sense of, of this amazing discovery. Sure. Um, I don't have a lot of details in front of me, but uh, I think um, there are some things that are really interesting about the study of brown dwarfs. So this is, you know, I don't know if your viewers are super plugged into the discourse about uh, what a brown dwarf is, right? Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, 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 yeah. So um, one of the things that astronomers learned over the 20th century is that stars 
are these balls of gas that are burning in a nuclear reaction, hydrogen or other elements in their cores, and that they do so for a very long time. And it's easy for a really big ball of gas to burn hydrogen, and it's very, very hard for a really small, relatively speaking, ball of gas to burn hydrogen. And eventually you get to the point uh, where you get smaller and smaller and smaller, uh, less and less mass, that uh, there is a certain size of ball of gas that's just not massive enough to ignite hydrogen fusion in its core for a sustained amount of period. And so we, in you know, those objects that fail to burn hydrogen in their cores, they don't get bright and stay bright. In fact, they just kind of cool off and turn kind of brown and they become very dim. And so the term that we've come up with for those objects is brown dwarf. Um, and so uh, that's a bit of star formation and kind of stellar evolutionary theory for you. Um, the fun thing about brown dwarfs and what makes them, uh, I think, particularly interesting to study is that because they're not doing the whole nuclear fusion thing, they're yes. not, they, they're too small to be stars. They're also bigger than any planets we know about. And oh. so they kind of occupy this inter, intermediate zone um, in between a star and a planet. Um, and when I say planet, I'm mostly referring to like a gas giant like Jupiter or something oh, yes. like that. So, so, so brown dwarf is like diameter wise in size, significantly larger than Jupiter, but say smaller than the sun? Uh, many brown dwarfs will be about Jupiter sized, depending on um, how their cooling um, processes have gone. There's a whole complicated. Just a lot story. denser, right? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, we, we would have to go into like a, a graduate level course in astrophysics to talk about <laughs> the diameters of these objects and why they are the way they are. Um, yeah, so when, yeah. When I Looks say like bigger or smaller, I'm mostly referring to mass. If that's okay with you, yeah, that's totally okay. fine. Yeah. yeah. So, so if I remember, these are things like 50 times the mass of Jupiter ish. Uh, yeah, I think 50 to 80 was a reasonable, um, excuse me, let me back up. Uh, the low, usually we talk about objects entering the brown dwarf regime from the planetary regime at around 13 um, Jupiter masses. Oh, so okay. you can actually shove, you know, 10 Jupiter masses worth of material together and you'd still consider it a planet in this scheme. But oh, once you go okay. over 13, now you're in a regime where you're thinking about them as brown dwarfs. Oh, nice. so 13 yes. on up. But less than about eighty. Okay. So and then for like, I was just thinking also for the temporal scale, we're talking about these being baby objects. That still means they're like a million years old or something. Different people have different standards for what they mean when they say young in this context. Oh, but okay. in, if you're watching an object that is still accreting mass, so it's still pulling stuff in from a disk that's around it that it was born with, uh, yeah. that object is going to be in the one to ten million year range. Awesome. Okay. Ballpark. Well, that's great. One to 10 million years definitely counts as young when we're talking about the age of the Earth, for example, or the age of the sun being more than 4 billion years old. Right? Oh, yeah, definitely fair. Yeah, it's exciting. So does your research involve thinking about planets that are only a few million years old, Tom? That's a good question, right? So um, I'm actually uh, actively working on a project this summer uh, that actually references some of Kevin Lumen's other work. Um, oh, nice. Kevin Lumen being the scientist that uh, made these observations with James. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So the the the, the person who's um, been referenced that we've already been talking about. Um, a lot of the work that I have actively going is studying the youngest brown dwarfs that are at that age of one to ten million years, and they're probably still creating some matter um, and still settling into what the what their, uh, you know, what their vibe is going to be like as they migrate through the cosmos and how they're going to settle into the, uh, how we see them later. So. Exciting. Very yeah. exciting. Yeah. Now, 
do you like the term failed star for brown <laughs> I mean, you hear that so often um in the sort of general conversation about brown dwarfs and yet i feel like they're not failures they're, they're just <laughs> what they are right i mean i don't know I think think that's a really funny question. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's useful pedagogically. I think if if you're learning about how stars work, it's useful to have this framework of, okay, a star can achieve this fusion burning or this object can fail to do that. And Mm -hmm. so from that point of view and setting up what they're doing and kind of what the categorization scheme is, I think it's a useful phrase. But as a fan of astronomy and as an appreciator of the natural world, I think (laughs) we can do something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I think we talked about this with one of our previous episodes. Someone was saying they're like they're overachieving planets, maybe. Ah. <laughs> yes. I mean, yeah, we'll vote for overachieving planet around here. Okay. Yeah. Although there are a lot of syllables in overachieving planet. Ah, that's okay. eh, it's fine. <laughs> okay. Well, I think this is a good time for us to ask a question. Tom uh, cool. is here and able to answer questions about planets and solar systems and stuff. Alan, do we have a, a question from a student? Uh, on this topic? Sure. So this question is from Aliana, who is asking, can a star turn into a planet? Ooh, that's a good question. That's a good question. So uh, we were just talking about, uh, I was using a kind of a, a way of framing the distinction between stars, brown dwarfs in the middle, and planets. Right. Uh, and the, the main criterion in that conversation that I was using to distinguish between those categories is one based on mass and how mass affects whether something's burning nuclear fusion inside its core or not. But I think there's another, there's another split that I'd like to, there's that I'd like to introduce, which is one based on like how something formed. So what's its formation history? How did it get there? Uh Right. And so in, especially in this framing, the, how you get a star is you have this like region of some cloud of uh, gas and dust in some part of a galaxy that gets dense, it starts collapsing under its own weight, and then there's going to be some central object in that region that uh, pulls in mass from its surroundings. It's going to suck in mass through gravity, and usually it'll pull in mass from a, uh, a disk of matter that's going to form around it, something we often call a circumstellar disk. Okay. And you're going to get something in the middle that will grow into a star, Mm-hmm. Um, or if it happens to have too low of a mass, we'll typically call it a brown dwarf if it's too uh, low for it to okay. um, have you know, sustained nuclear burning. Um, and a planet fundamentally forms in a different process. The planet is something oh. that doesn't form at the center, but that forms in that circumstellar disk of stuff, something I that see. we often call a protoplanetary disk for reasons that are a bit of foreshadowing. Uh. Right. <laughs> <laughs> And so planets form as a byproduct of star formation. Um, They form at the same time. So like the sun and its planets basically formed, were born at the same time. Uh, So the, the, because of the nature of that relationship, it wouldn't really make logical sense to form a star that then becomes a planet. Um, Mm. Because to form a planet, you need to be around a host star. That's our, that's our understanding of it. And so like the timeline wouldn't just wouldn't work. Um, so the the answer to the question as written is probably no. Um, if if you'd permit me to go on a really fanciful detour outside of Ooh, what we we love say. fanciful detours. We yeah. love fanciful detours. So there are some goofy situations in astrophysics where you could uh, take an object like a star and strip away a bunch of its mass. Um, oh, through nice. some kind of encounter with another object or something like that, mm-hmm. uh, maybe in like a binary system. 
And in that kind of scenario, you might be able to reduce the mass of something that we usually call a star down to the mass of something that we usually call a planet. Oh, uh, wow. And so like that's almost feasible, but I wouldn't <laughs> count on it happening very often in the universe. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's so, fair. So that's I, a special scenario. Yeah. So exactly. I, I, you know, I, as you know, I study colliding galaxies and when mm. the galaxies collide, you have billions of stars converging upon billions of other stars. The individual stars never really hit each other physically, but they pass close enough by each other that they could strip away large amounts of material, right? Yeah. So that's that's the scenario that I think is worth considering, or maybe a long-term binary system where there's some funky stellar evolution that happens between the two of them. You get some mm. mass transfer. Uh, yeah. Another, another comparable scenario is um, how some... Uh, supernova occur is you get like a star that dumps a bunch of mass onto a different star and then it explodes. Uh -huh. So yeah. transfers do happen in astrophysics. I just don't think they would happen to produce something that looks like a planet at the end of that <laughs> star. That's fair. Yeah, you got like a white dwarf or something. Very exciting. Right. <laughs> right. So that's a great answer to this very interesting question. What it means is that we have to think about how planets like our Earth form in a completely different way from say how a say how a star or a brown dwarf would form right and as a result the things that we see on planets should be significantly different from what we see on stars isn't that right i think so can you repeat the specific observable again that yeah. you would see differently on planets versus stars well i would just imagine for example their atmospheres right, right. what kinds of elements you would expect uh, seeing inside the atmosphere of a planet compared to, say, the atmosphere of a star or a brown dwarf. And, and yeah. So there, there's got to be a significantly different uh, makeup, a composition thereof, right? Yeah. Um, so this is, I think, a really valuable conversation because there's different kinds of planets. Um, and if we look at our own solar system, we know that we... Um, we're standing yeah. on a ball of rock that has a little bit of water and a little bit of air around it. Uh, um, yes. Yeah. You know, not all the planets in the solar system are like that. Um, Fair. We have, uh, a bunch of very large planets that are mostly from the outside to the inside, mostly made of gas. Uh, and yeah. so when you're comparing like the atmospheres of stars to the atmospheres of planets in terms of, and I think you were just focused on composition just now. Yeah. Um, the composition of the planet Jupiter is very, very close to the composition of the sun. Um, oh, and that's, you know, they formed out of very similar material, right? Yeah, a planet big enough to um, be as massive as Jupiter, the only uh -huh. source of mass that can give you enough stuff to build a planet as big as Jupiter, uh -huh. the only reservoir, the only source of all that stuff is going to be the hydrogen and helium floating around in the kind of the birth cloud of a star mm. like the sun. Okay. And so the sun sucked up a bunch of the hydrogen and helium and trace elements. Jupiter also sucked up a bunch of hydrogen, helium, and trace elements. Uh -huh. And so their compositions are going to be quite similar. The main difference that you're going to see is that Jupiter is much, much cooler. And so there's going to be mm -hmm. molecules that form in its atmosphere that would remain in the atomic state in the sun. I'm getting very okay. technical here, but but I think you asked this question. Hey, so. atoms and molecules. I'm cool with that. No, that's mm -hmm. great. Yeah. 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 So, but, but Earth... Uh, has mostly like nitrogen and oxygen in its atmosphere, right? It's nothing it's much like smaller hydrogen too. Right, it's much smaller and it's warmer than Jupiter because it's closer to the sun. How does that gather? How, how does how does that kind of material like literally support life as we know it today? Ooh, good, good question. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, 
I mean, I'm not a biologist, although I do study astrobiology, which is just Ooh. the study of life in the universe. Um, okay. And so I can talk about this in very broad terms, but when we yeah, start yeah. asking questions like what exactly does life need, I'm going to say, <laughs> oh, it needs some carbon and it needs some nitrogen and it needs some hydrogen and it needs some oxygen and some other things, phosphorus, <laughs> sulfur. Uh, and I, <laughs> I'm i not the right. guy to talk to if you want to figure <laughs> out how to combine those into actual life. Um, but I deal with, I deal with just the bulk elements. Um, so yeah, life, uh, as we know it needs, um, a few different things. I think there are folks who talk about the question of like planetary habitability. That's a phrase Mm -hmm. that people will throw around, um, or like the Goldilocks zone of like, you want to be on a planetary surface that's not too hot. It's not too cold, but it's just right for usually usually what people are talking about is like liquid water. So you want there to be liquid surface water on the surface of a planet in order for it to support life as we know. When we're talking about Goldilocks, what we're really saying is we want the Goldilocks to be just right for our atmosphere because we have life as we understand it based on mm-hmm. things like carbon and RNA and DNA and proteins and things like that. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is that a common thing? Does that happen in planets all around us? I know that for example, at least the, the Kepler mission and the test mission, these, these two planet finding um, space missions were uh, tuned, especially to try to find planets that were like earth. Right. But the, did they also look for things that were in a habitable zone, whether or not they were like earth? things like that? That's a good question, right? So um, I am not an expert in exoplanet detection, but um, I can speak. You have to stop being so modest, Tom. You're not an expert. You're an expert expert in all kinds of stuff. No, please, please, please don't be so modest. Just tell us what you know. It's already way more than expertise that helps me understand what's going on. How about that? (laughs) That's very humble of you. You're very sweet. Anyway, please go on. Go on. Go on. So um, in the search for habitable uh, which is to say like Goldilocks zone, terrestrial worlds around other planets or uh, around other stars. Okay. Uh, there are a few different things that you want to look for to really have a successful search, right? Okay. So um, your audience may or may not be super familiar with like what we call the transit method. So watching lots of stars, each of which may have a planetary system, and hoping that some of the planets around some of these stars have orbits that are aligned such that the star and the planet will line up every now and then. Mm-hmm. So you can yeah. see a little dip in brightness as the planet blocks some of the light. So that's right. going to happen once per orbit if the orbits are aligned just right. Uh, yeah. And in addition to needing the alignment to be right, there are also a few other factors that play into what kind of uh, signal you get, what kind of dip that you see as the planet crosses in front of the brightness of the star. Um, One parameter is going to be what's the relative size of the planet to the star. So if the star is really small and the planet's really big, then you'll see a big dip in light because the planet will absorb lots of the light. If you have the opposite, really big star, a really small planet, you're going to see a tiny dip. So it's the ratio, it's the relative size of the planet to the star. The planet is pretty much always going to be smaller than the star. But the relative yeah. size is going to show up in the data that you get. You're going to see brightness coming along, and then time's going to go on, and you're going to catch this dip. And how deep that dip is in the brightness of the star over time is going to tell you something about the size of the planet relative to the size of the star. Another piece of the signal that's really important is how often you see those dips. So if it's mm. a stable orbit and everything is aligned right, 
then you're going to see the dip every time you have that planet cross in front of the face of its star. And so you're going to be able to pull out how often that happens. That might be once every 365 days, if it's exactly <laughs> like our solar system. Yeah, or it yeah. Might be like once every five days, if it's really whizzing around there. Um, and we see, yeah. we see examples of both of those extremes wow. um, in the data that we have, right? And so if you're hunting for planets that might have some resemblance, especially in temperature to our Earth, then you're going to want to focus, you're going to want to look for planets that are not too close to their star that they're zipping around all the time. Because uh, one of the things we know about how gravity works is the closer you, to, you are to an orbiting body, the yeah. faster you have to move to stay in orbit. And well, so Mercury moves around so fast compared to all the other planets. Exactly. Yeah. Mercury mm -hmm. is much faster on an orbit than Earth is. Um, mm. And so yeah. when you find planets that are on really zippy orbits, that is usually indi an indication that they're very, very hot on their surface, probably too hot to support life. Oh, okay. Makes sense. All right. As so, we know it. Right. Wow. Very exciting. And, and so, you know where I'm going with this. Well, maybe you can guess where I'm going with this. I'm trying to get out of you. Like how many planets out there do you think are actually habitable by our standards by human standards Ooh. right yeah because once you get that then we can start talking about the reality of uh, certain uh shall we say classic video games things like <laughs> <That's great. laughs> we talk about other civilizations and other people and things like that there absolutely yeah. yeah um my my understanding of the of the of the statistics on how many planets there are and of what kind um uh which would really a lot of the statistical work came out uh out only in the past decade or so as yeah. like the Kepler mission was really able to collect tons of information yeah. about lots of different star systems. Yeah. Cause it just stared uh, at the one spot of sky for like years. Right. Right. And they would have gone longer if they could have. Um, the, the punchline is that uh, most stars, as far as we can tell, based on the statistics that we can do, most stars have planets, probably more than one planet. Uh, and, the solar systems, the stellar systems that we see in the data that we have are very diverse. And so they have a large scattered range of distributions of distances, different distributions of masses. So there's a different mixtures of like big, big planets close under their star or little planets, you know, arranged in lots of different ways. Uh, and I think that's a really fascinating result. Um, we live in a galaxy and almost certainly a universe full of many different and diverse planetary systems. Uh, and one of the things that I take away from that is uh, I think it's very likely that there are many, many places in our galaxy and probably in our universe where uh, the many of the conditions necessary for life as we know it would be present. Ooh, <laughs> that's exciting. <laughs> now, now you, you got to tell us a little bit about the work that you do uh, and, you know, in addition to your research and how that relates to science education or entertainment, astronomy, that kind of thing. Give, give us a few minutes on that. Eh? Sure. That sounds great. Yeah. So um, I got this cool job with um, the biggest professional organization of astronomers, um, as far as I know, certainly in North America, maybe in the world. Yeah. Um, it's called the American Astronomical Society. And so I'm a staff yes, member. Yes, I am a member. I am a full member. And, and you are a staff member. So I bow yeah. to you. Uh, thank sure, you. Sure. Thank you it's for really everything that you do. The other way, but sure. <laughs> you want to get paid, right? Um, and uh, I, I view my role as figuring out how to like 
how to um, organize the professional society towards the end of improving how astronomy education at all levels gets done by the members of the, of the professional society. One. And so I think there are a lot of people in, you know, in the world of astronomy, professional astronomers or educators or people at universities or people in other roles, a lot of people who are very passionate about making um, the, the knowledge and the ways of thinking that astronomers do very accessible and done in a high quality way and done to really empower people's lives. There's a lot of people Great. who are very passionate about that cause. Um, and so I really, I really view my role as figuring out how to channel that energy into a kind of collective coherent way so that people can make a bigger impact. Oh, um, I love that. And, and I'm still learning how to do it, right? I got this job less than a year ago and oh. uh, there wasn't anybody working in this role before me. Um, wow. And so I'm doing, I'm doing a lot of figuring out. It's a real career pivot for me, but I think I'm, I think I'm getting kind of good at it. Uh, I really, awesome. <laughs> yeah. It's an important job. Yeah, it's important. And, and I'm sure that, uh, you know, all of us audience members out there, if you have some suggestions about what the American Astronomical Society ought to do as far as educating or helping members educate and entertain and otherwise just uh, spread, share our human understanding of the universe, you know, uh, yeah. you got to tell Tom, right? So how, how do we how do we contact you, Tom? How can we find you? Are you on social media somewhere? Can we follow the things um, that you I have? I occasionally check my Twitter at, uh, I, I call myself Tomer Stargazer. That's T-O-M-R underscore Stargazer. Okay. Um, you can just email me. Um, okay. Uh, Tom.rice at AAS.org would be fine. Yeah. I, I'm sure that there would be a lot of people be interested in talking about that kind of thing, in, including, for example, how we could get some video games in there. Uh, mm -hmm. Super Planet Smasher, was that? Uh, I think Crasher, but uh, I Super, don't... It, Super Planet Crasher, okay. I think. Um, I, uh, no. Space Engine, too, is a similar Space idea. Space Engine, okay. Or Universe Sandbox, one of those two. <laughs> Any, anything built by Nintendo? Uh, is there, like, Tears of the Planet Crashers or anything like that? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. That would be right? amazing. So that, the Zelda game Tears of the Kingdom has a ton of physics stuff in it, which I'm really, really with. I mean, oh, you good. can build machines that follow physical rules. Uh, Excellent. Fly around in them or use them to fight monsters. Oh, um, wow. So, that's so, so does Nintendo like hire astronomers and physicists and, and you know, science majors and stuff to, to help? I haven't seen those job ads yet, so I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they're all consultants. Sure. Hmm. Maybe, yeah. Uh, yeah, so... These are the things that we, we can all do, right? And especially if we have uh, the AAS.org behind us, right, Tom? And, and you're there. Sure. We're, our, our time is flying by. I, I don't know how much time we have left, but I definitely want to, to make the point and, and give you a chance to, to say something about this. Um, you are uh, fluent in American Sign Language. That's right. Right? Yeah. This is like yeah. so amazing. I, I think you might be the only one. And, and for those of you who uh, have been uh, following our TikToks or, or other like Instagram and things like that, you may remember that when Tom was on there uh, at the American Astronomical Society meeting in Pasadena uh, in the summer of 22, uh, Tom was featured uh, and he indeed showed us his fluency uh, with American Sign, which I think is fantastic. I mean, that must also be another avenue 
to extend astronomy and the cosmic thing to lots of people who otherwise might not get a chance to do that, right, Tom? Sure, sure. Yeah. So um, I come from a deaf family. Um, uh-huh. uh, my folks and some of my aunts and uncles are deaf. And so that's oh. um, an important part of my, I mean, like American Sign Language and assigning identity is, is a really part of, important part of what I would call my heritage. Wow, um, cool. Much, much stronger than other kinds of cultural influences that might have reached me is like, I, I come from a signing family. Um, and wow. so it's really big. Um, in fact, like I moved to Washington, D.C. Um, about a year ago. And actually, one of the things that I'm happiest about while being here is that I'm very close to the country's only entirely like signing university um, for deaf folks, uh, Gallaudet wow. University here in D.C. And so I run into like deaf and signing people all the time. Um, I've got a huge community of like uh, friends and acquaintances who are um, so I call myself a coda. I'm a children. I'm a child of deaf adults. Uh, and oh. That's that's a term you'll hear pretty often. And so I've got like a big community of codas and of um, other deaf folks here in, in D.C. Uh, and I'm really happy about that. Uh-huh. Um, so this is nice. in a certain sense. These are these are my people. Um, I am trying to figure out how to make sure that I am giving back to my community. Um, Mm -hmm. And so the way I'll put this is uh, we live in a country and in a world that is not often friendly or accessible to deaf folks. Um, uh, And a lot of that's uh, really unfortunate. There's a lot of discrimination that um, deaf folks encounter and there's a lot of uh, inequality and there's a lot of um, lack of access to educational and employment opportunities that are totally needless, right? We can design a better system and we could organize our society to really eliminate a lot of these challenges and we haven't. which is a really tough and kind of personal thing. And so a thing that I'm very uh, passionate about is uh, making sure that I can, I do what I can to improve access to uh, scientific knowledge, scientific thinking, um, engagement with uh, STEM issues in uh, whatever parts of the deaf community that I can, um, that I can access. Uh, And so part of that's doing some stuff here in DC. I'm uh, working Uh with an astronomy club of students at Gallaudet university. Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And they've got, um, they've got a good faculty advisor and they've got a cool telescope. Um, uh, For those on video, Gallaudet is signed like this. So it's two fingers and Gallaudet. So I feel awkward saying it out loud without actually signing. (laughs) That's Um, marvelous. And and it's so that it's just a single sign. Well, yeah. 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 Gallaudet university, right? Um, yeah, nice. and for those of you who are listening, I made a um, the sign starts near your eyes, and then you move your pointer and index finger back towards your ear. Uh, you'll have to look it up. There's um, I'm also preparing to do uh, to participate in some outreach and um, astronomy education events for the upcoming solar eclipse happening in April of next year. So yeah, yeah, April twenty yeah. fourth. April, yeah. April 8th, 2020. April 8th, 2020. Right. Exactly. Yeah, right. Exactly. So um, it'll be great. Yeah, so Rochester, New York, is home to the only other major um, educational institution that's uh, yeah NTID yeah yeah the National Technical Institute for the Deaf. My dad has awesome. an associate degree from there, so wow, that's kind amazing. of like part of my like my own. I've got like so much oral history um, or family history there, uh, and so I'm planning to organize with a few other good folks um, deaf and signing friendly solar eclipse activities. Um, that's great. Uh, wow. Happening. On the campus, probably of um, yeah, because it's right in the path. Yeah, it's, it's in totality, right? So um, that's where I'll be next April. Marvelous. Um, yeah. Oh, 
That is so cool. That is so cool. Uh, Wow. Okay. Just for that alone, I would go to Rochester uh, for the total solar eclipse. But uh, there may be be other reasons too. Separately, because it's a local optimum on the weather, according to some uh, climatologists. (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) Not necessarily a global optimum, but a local one. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's fantastic. Wow, Tom, that... That is so cool. I wish we did have more time, but you know, we're going to wrap this up this time and then ask you, can we talk again sometime soon? Like sure. maybe certainly before or, or right around the eclipse time, you can tell us all about that. We can get deeper into this. We just scratched the surface and there's so much more to talk about. There's so much more about the science that I care about. Um, thank you, Tom, for being with us today. Can, can we, can we find a time to get you back again sometime? That sounds great. Okay. It'll be a real pleasure. Thank you very, very much, Tom. Again, uh, Tom R underscore Stargazer on yeah, Twitter. Tom R. Stargazer. Right? Okay. Or email nice. uh, to tom.rice at aas.org. Tom, yeah. thank you so much for being with us today. It was a real pleasure. We learned a lot and it was a lot of fun. Thanks. Thank you both. Alan, as always, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate everything that you do for this show. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. It's always, yeah. it's always a good time. And for all of you out there, thank you for being with us today. Thank you for being a part of the universe. And if you like what you hear and see, please consider supporting us on Patreon. And you can always find us on social media everywhere at the universe. Thank you again. Thank you for being a part of the universe.